Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Good uh, morning to you all. It's good to be with you, and it's a great privilege to be able to... uh, share scripture with you this morning and some some thoughts uh, from his word. I'm struggling <clears throat> with a little bit of laryngitis, better than it was yesterday, um, but still not 100% for sure. So I'm not going to be able to holler and scream or anything like that. So I hope that's okay. But uh, ho- hopefully I'll be able to, you'll be able to hear me okay. I appreciate the, the help here, the the uh, amplification helps. So it's been a, a tremendous morning already. You know, we've we've experienced a lot together. Um, some exciting, exciting things. You know, that God is doing. Looking back at what he's what he has been doing, and and reflecting a little bit forward on 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 uh, the exciting potential that the, the year holds for uh, for us. And um, it's it's just been awesome. Uh, we want to take some time now and and uh, get into the word together. Uh, <clears throat> I appreciate the opportunity to to um, share the Lord's table uh, observance together. Appreciate uh, being able to have our thoughts directed to these things. I want to I want to ask parents in particular this morning: uh, How do you feel? when your kids don't listen to you. You want to describe that for me? <laughs> we have the living illustration of the truth of the of the matter uh, yeah in front of us all the time. Um, this morning we are uh, taking some time to think about a question and the question is how teachable am I? And I would like for each of us to think about that this morning. How teachable am I? And then in the next uh, 40 minutes or so, uh, uh, we're intending to, uh, uh, to have this be a short introduction to the Old Testament wisdom literature in preparation for the upcoming series on the book of Ecclesiastes, which begins next week, as Josh mentioned. So the wisdom literature of the Old Testament includes the books Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Some of the Psalms in particular are classified as wisdom Psalms, uh, while many of the other Psalms contain elements that clearly identify them with the, the wisdom uh, genre or wisdom literature. You uh, may be aware that these five books are also referred to sometimes as the poetical books. Now, we might not tend to associate poetry with wisdom uh, or songs with wisdom, uh, but that's probably a deficiency in our appreciation of things. I appreciate what uh, Sabi Stursky uh, says about the matter. He's the managing editor of Folks on the Family, 
um, sorry, managing editor of Focus on Faith and Culture, which is a newsletter produced by Focus on the Family Canada. And he writes these words, and I would like you to listen as I, as I uh, quote him here. He says, these books, referring to those five books, the Old Testament wisdom literature, these books engage all the biggest questions that people have been grappling with since the beginning. But they don't do it in a direct way that modern readers are most comfortable with. Although these books are part of scripture, they're also part of a larger wisdom tradition that was popular across the ancient Near East. They employ literary conventions and cultural ideas that are often alien to our contemporary minds. Their elusive style and lyrical structure invite the reader to think carefully, to weigh and to chew and to ponder these sayings of the wise. And then he says, it's a genre or rather a cluster of subgenres designed to speak to the heart and imagination as much as to the mind. So we're talking about songs and poems and stories and parables and even riddles. And it's important to understand this because recognizing and appreciating the distinct natures of the literary genres does a couple of important things for us. Number one, it prevents us from being frustrated by the material. Because we tend to like it when things are straightforward, direct, cognitive prose. I know I do. I, uh, I like prose. I gravitate towards the New Testament letters. Have since the day I bowed my knee to Jesus Christ, I'm drawn to the writings of Paul because he just says it right out. It's like this and this and this, and you can follow along logically and it makes sense and you go, I got it. But when you turn to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, it's not like that. It's a lot of songs and poetry and sayings and, and, even, and even, uh, even riddles. I don't know if you did the advanced reading assignment or not, but if you did, you, you read Proverbs chapter one. Proverbs chapter one, verse five and six, it says this. Let the wise hear, I'm sorry, I've got this thing going on here. Could, would somebody mind grabbing me a Kleenex, uh, please? There usually is some here, but um, and I don't have any, any with me. Uh, thank you, Andy, very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. <coughs> thank you, Art. I did touch, uh, I had, <laughs> I, I definitely need this today. I did, uh, get, Florence insisted on checking, testing me for COVID the other day. So I know that I don't have COVID, but I do have, I have something. But it's better today than it was yesterday, that's for sure. So I'm encouraged by that. So Proverbs chapter one, verses five and six says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. I don't know about you, but I don't like riddles. In fact, I kind of hate them. And I, but I know some people who do. My brother-in-law, Jerry Weatherby, loves riddles. 
and puzzles. I don't like puzzles. I don't even like doing puzzles. I just, it's just, it's just not my thing, right? And, uh, and, uh, but, but here, here's the thing. I, I like it when things are clear and direct and plain to see, but I have to concede that life is filled with riddles. And the wisdom writers employ things like riddles and, and they use them in their quest for truth and to teach. And accepting this would be part, it seems, of accepting the many paradoxes of life. And you're gonna be hearing a lot more about that starting next week when we dig into the book of Ecclesiastes. The other thing it does uh, when we, when we uh, develop, develop an appreciation for the, 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 the literary genres of the, or literary types, if you will, of the wisdom literature, the second thing it does, it not only prevents us from being frustrated, but it also protects us from making some major interpretive mistakes. So for example, uh, it is the nature of a proverb that it is something that is generally true, but not necessarily absolutely true. A classic example, which I'll share with you, is found in Proverbs chapter 26, verses four and five. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse four, it says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But Proverbs 26, verse 5, the very next verse, says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And this is a classic example of the fact that Proverbs are general truths, not absolute truths necessarily, because on the one hand, we're told to answer a fool, and the, on the other hand, immediately afterwards, we're told, uh, are told not uh, to answer not a fool and then, and then told to answer a fool. So which is it? And the only way these things can both be true, the only way is that sometimes we should answer a fool and sometimes we should not answer a fool. People, we have often made the mistake of taking Proverbs as absolute promises. A proverb is not intended to be that taken that way. And we need to appreciate the literary genre of, the, of a proverb. So a common example of, of a proverb being taken uh, as a, an as absolute promise is uh, a very common one, Proverbs chapter 22, verse six. Some of you would have it committed to memory. Proverbs chapter 22, verse six, speaking to parents for sure, says train up a child in the way he should go and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. While that is generally true, if you believe that is absolutely true, then you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna run into some disappointment. And people you love are potentially going to run into some disappointment. And one of the saddest things I've seen is parents claim this proverb as an absolute truth and then have to live with the disappointment when they discover 
that that's not a prom, an absolute promise. More about that next week when we get into the book of Ecclesiastes. You can't understand the book of Ecclesiastes without understanding some of these things about life. God promises a lot of things. But like April said earlier, it doesn't mean the storms aren't going to come. You and I want to believe that if we just do all the right things, that we're going to get exactly what it is we want and hope for in this life. That's not what God promises. So the, so the Proverbs are general truths. That's, that's what, a, what a proverb is. And, uh, and there are exceptions to that, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, um, and I, I just want to reiterate, this, this is not relativism. Uh, proverb, to say proverbs uh, are generally true is to acknowledge that much that is true in this world is relatively true. And people here, when the people here in churches often hear the word relative, or rel- they think of relativism. And relativism has kind of become kind of a boogeyman in Christian circles. Uh, and, and there's a good reason for that, because relativism is a school of thought that there are, is no such thing as absolute truth. So philosophically, if a person uh, ascribes to relativism as a philosophy, they are ascribing to a false philosophy because relativism means believing uh, there's no such thing as absolute truth. But I would suggest to you that Believing all truth is absolute is also a mistake because we live in a changing world and a broken world. And sometimes you should do this. Other times, don't do that. Do this instead. And learning the difference is part of wisdom. We are called to live our lives by principles. We are instructed to live by good principles and we should live our lives to the best and the wisest way we can. But don't be surprised, Solomon, don't be surprised when in spite of the best laid plans of mice and men, stuff just happens. This type of disappointment is is, is a big issue for Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. But I want to move on this, this morning and uh, I want to move on in our understanding of and appreciation of the wisdom literature. You may have noted from the quote that I read earlier by uh, Subby Stursky that the wisdom literature tradition and its genres and subgenres were common to the various cultures of the ancient world. Wasn't just the Israelites who had their, their wisdom literature, who wrote their wisdom literature. Everybody was doing it. The Babylonians were doing it. The Egyptians were doing it. They all had, remember that time when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon? Uh, the, the, it, was the, it was the culture of the day. It was very much a thing. Uh, write, wisdom writing was. And um, so it was common to the 
the various cultures of the ancient world, and it's important for us to recognize this too, because there is a sense in which, and follow me on this if you would, there is a sense in which the wisdom writings of scripture are the same as the wisdom literature of the ancient world in general. Uh, in fact, if you study wisdom literature as a, 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 a type of literature or genre outside of scripture, you will see that a lot of the ancient peoples had very similar sayings. A lot of them were the were same. Some of them were identical. And, uh, and, that, and, that, and that's a thing, right? So the wisdom literature of the scripture, the books come to us, the writings come to us, employing and adhering to uh, the literary traditions and conventions of the broader culture of the time and that place and time in the world. And we are, I just simply remind you, we're talking about human language after all, right? So there's a lot of commonality between the wisdom literature of Scripture and the wisdom writings of the ancient world and the various cultures and nations. We would say the world. It's important to recognize that. It's okay to recognize that. Don't find yourself in the camp of the Christian who thinks that just because somebody doesn't acknowledge God, that means they're an idiot or that they know nothing. I've lived long enough as a Christian to know that there are a lot of people around me that do not acknowledge God and do not know Christ that are smarter in some things than I am and know things that I don't know and I can learn things from them. However, though the wisdom writings of the scripture are the same in many ways, as the wisdom writings of the nations of cultures of the world, in the ancient world, there is also a vital difference or distinction. And I wanna talk with you about what that distinction is. So what I just said about Proverbs a minute ago about them being things that are generally true but not absolutely true by virtue of the type of writing they are, that is not the case when reference is being made to God. Why? Because the God of the Bible, the one true God, who is also the God of the wisdom literature of the Bible, does not change. He is absolutely true, consistent, and there's all kinds of theological terms that describe God's, he's immutable. He does not, he does not change nor is he ever inconsistent. And that is what sets the wisdom literature of scripture, apart from the wisdom literature in general, it's that these writings here are inspired by God and grounded in the wisdom of God. So the gods of the ancient world were fickle and they were flawed characters. But the one true God of the Bible, the one true God of creation, is absolutely true. 
And again, I want to quote Sabistersky. He says, unlike the Western, or sorry, unlike the wisdom literature of the ancient Near East, the biblical wisdom books don't rely ultimately on human wisdom or observation. Ultimately. There is much in the wisdom literature that is about observation. One of my, one of my favorite statements in, in, in the Proverbs is uh, go to the ant. Learn from her. And you might not think you can learn anything from an ant, but God says you can. He, he says, Sabi Sersky says, unlike the wisdom literature of the ancient Near East, the biblical wisdom books don't rely ultimately on human wisdom or observation. Instead, they're grounded in the wisdom of God behind all of the perplexities and uncertainties of life. These writings, that reminds me of Ecclesiastes too, Josh. Behind all of the perplexities and uncertainties of life, these writings recognize the hand of a sovereign creator who is all wise and all powerful, a God not of chaos, but of order. We experience a lot of chaos in our lives. But our God, the one true God, is above it all. He's above it all. This idea of identifying with the world or creation on the one hand and thus affirming it in a sense, while at the same time, on the other hand, uh, distinguishing from it is actually something that is key to understanding our situation in this world. And we could, we could talk, you know, there could be a whole message just on that one truth. There could be multiple messages on that one truth. It's, you could trace it throughout scripture, this idea. It's, it's behind the, uh, where Jesus said, told, said that you were to be of the, in the world but not of the world. What does it mean to be in the world? Is Jesus just talking about uh, physicality? No. Um, anyways, I don't want to bog down on that, but, but, but the idea, but not of, of the world. And so this idea of, just, on the one hand, identifying while at the same time distinguishing is not just something that um, comes to us out of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's what makes the parables of Jesus work. Think about this for a moment. The parables of Jesus. Think, think about this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed. Good seed. It's kind of kind of sounds almost sacrilegious. It's certainly radical to say the kingdom of heaven is like a man, but the, even the word parable me, has that meaning. To cast alongside. Two, two different aspects of life paralleling one another. The seen and the unseen, if you will. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. I want to press this just a bit more. You undoubtedly know that the ancient nations, the nations of the ancient world had their, their own prophets, their own priests, their own kings, as well as their own wise men. And Israel had its prophets, its priests, its kings, and its wise men. But there was a difference. 
we're talking the same, but different. So that's kind of a riddle, isn't it? It's the same, only different. But if you can wrap your mind around that for a minute, that, that will help take you a long way to understanding true, what, how truth what, uh, manifests itself in, in this world and what is true and what is real. So the wisdom literature is on the one hand grounded in creation because God founded the world upon principles or laws, if you like, consistent with his character and nature and has woven them into the fabric of what we call life. So God can say, go to the ant, learn from the ant. Same, same as you can learn from any other person, right? So wisdom rightly says things like go to the ant, uh, but you, you don't have to know God to, to know that. Think about your scientist friend. Think about your scientist friend who doesn't know God. Does that mean he doesn't know anything? But here's the distinction. He doesn't know the most important thing. So wisdom rightly says those things, but uh, wisdom literature is ultimately about our relationship with God who is overall and, and above all, and that's where the radical difference comes in. There's the technical words that, uh, they're not all that technical really, but the terms that theologians use for these two things are, uh, they refer to general revelation and special revelation. So science is in the, in the realm of, of, uh, of um, general revelation or natural, which feeds into the idea of natural law. But then there's special revelation. When God reveals truth by his spirit to his prophets and his apostles and to you and I in his word, scripture, special revelation. It, it, it reveals stuff to us that you can't learn from a test tube. Now you can learn a lot from a test tube. It's part of wisdom, but it's not enough. It's not bad. It can be. But it is always inadequate. So just to dig into this idea a little bit deeper, consider with me this morning the word Wisdom. In Hebrew, the word wisdom is chokmah. And I listened to a Hebrew pronounce this, and he, it's not like chokmah. You know what it's like. It's like chokmah. Right? You got to get those guttural sounds in there, right? To make the language come alive and be expressive. But uh, it's the principal term used throughout the, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, through the Old Testament, uh, for Wisdom. The Septuagint Greek is Sophia, Tom, right? Wisdom. Uh, if you consider its usage as a noun, a verb, and an adjective, it occurs close to 300 times. That's a lot. When it is first used in Scripture, it's in reference to the skilled tradesmen that Moses called on by God's direction to construct the tabernacle and to fashion all of the amazing furniture and, and uh, 
and the garments of the, the, the priests and, and all of that embroidery and all of that. Uh, Exodus chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39 explain it in detail. And the, that's where this word chakmah comes up and it's used over and over again there. And the, the main idea is that of a skilled craftsman. Someone who's mastered an art form. Even, now stick, stay with me. I know this, this might, for some of you, this might be a little bit heavy, but just stick with me here. Even when they're fashioning an idol. So if you go, and you don't need to turn there right now, but if you go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 20, the word hakma is used of a man fashioning an idol. And that word, hakma, is the Hebrew word wise or wisdom. It's used over in 2 Samuel. I mentioned a few weeks back about David's family and how messed up they, things got. Uh, one of David's sons who counseled his brother on how to seduce his stepsister is referred to with the same term. Hakma. Clever, cunning, shrewd, even diabolical. What does that tell us? It tells us that this word for wisdom had a, a meaning in, an, in, the, in the ancient world that wasn't a, just a spiritual kind of thing. It was... It was uh, in fact, the whole idea, main idea in, in the Exodus passages, it was somebody who was skilled. Doesn't necessarily mean they used their skills for good, but they were skilled at something. And that, I, I, I think in, um, in English uh, today, um, I think the closest synonym that I could, you know, come up to cloak, closest like maybe colloquial term that we're used to using is the word smart. You want something done well? Go find a smart person. Somebody that knows what they're doing. Somebody that's gotten really good at doing something really well. Skilled. And if they don't know how to do it, they'll figure it out because they're so smart. That's what the word hakma means. But the meaning, like so many words in scripture, is picked up and developed and lifted. If I could describe to you what kind of happens uh, and you can, you can read, read the scriptures yourself, obviously, and see, see this development. Uh, if you read through the Old Testament and see how, how it is developed, um, it's that this idea of being smart takes on a, an ethical or moral quality to it. that's an ethical or moral quality that it doesn't have apart from 
a relationship with God, acknowledging God and being rightly re- related to God. It's as if, if I describe it, it's, it's as if God says in his word, you want to be smart? Anybody want to be smart? Let me, let me tell you what it really means to be smart. Let me tell you what smart really is. And then he, he opens up this whole idea of what, what life looks like when you have a relationship, a personal relationship with God. And we see this divergence between what, by the time we come to the New Testament, we have this clear divergence between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. You might be familiar with this passage, James chapter three, just quick look, James chapter three. How are we doing for time here? Not good. Um, Okay. James chapter three, it's, it's, it's worth uh, taking a, a moment to read this together. James three thirteen seventeen, 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The wisdom that comes from above is the kind of wisdom that the wisdom literature is primarily about. It's the wisdom that comes from God. It transcends mere worldly wisdom. It doesn't depend on your IQ or your ability to figure everything out because there are so many things in life that are beyond our ability to figure out. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your paths or he will make your path straight. Philippians chapter four, in all things, don't be anxious, but in by all things with prayer and with supplication, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God that passes understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this, there, there are all kinds of aspects uh, to this, you know, because when we talk about the, uh, the wisdom that comes from a relationship with God, a right, being rightly related uh, to God, one true God, uh, knowing God in his fullness is very much like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. So there's a lot to this, but, but one of the things that's associated with worldly wisdom is, is pride. Because Worldly wisdom tends to be all about how smart I am and how I can figure everything out. While the wisdom that comes from God involves what? Humbling myself. So you want to be smart or do you want to be a smart aleck? Which is it? The book of Job. There's a lot of stuff I'm not going to, I'm just, I can't answer a lot of questions I can't answer. Am I okay with that? Am I going to be all right with that? And I humble myself enough to say, God, I don't, I don't understand. I don't get it. But I'm going to trust you because I know you. The Bible would say that would be a smart 
decision. No, more than that. That would be a wise decision. That kind of wisdom comes from above. And that's why there's a distinction between biblical wisdom and mere knowledge. You need knowledge to be wise, but all the knowledge in the world won't make you wise. We've never had more knowledge than we have today. That's true. That's, that's, that's absolutely, no. yeah, that's absolutely true. We've never had more knowledge. Collectively, individually, man, we got Google. And yet it could be argued that we are no wiser for it. In fact, it could be argued we are less wise. But the more I know, the more I realize how much I don't know. Am I okay with that? Why would I think myself teachable if I am prone to think that I already pretty much have it all figured out? Humility. The wisdom of the world is not all bad. It's, it can be good. There's, there is such a thing as good science. It goes bad when it's corrupted by wrong motives, but it's always inadequate. It's inadequate for knowing God. Uh, when it's based on the orders and principles of creation and the laws of nature built into creation by the creator, then it's sound. Uh, it's always inadequate when we lack that one thing that is the most important thing, which is a relationship uh, with God. That's the idea that wisdom is... Uh, more than simple knowledge is where the subject of the fear of the Lord comes in. And, and uh, for sake of time uh, this morning, uh, you probably, may, you may know that when you're talking about the wisdom literature, that that's a theme that comes up over and over again, the fear of the Lord. And uh, um, the fear, having the fear of the Lord is about having a relationship with him. And uh, we could, again, it's one of those things we could talk a long time about what it means to fear the Lord. But at least, consider this this morning, at least it's, it's not what we think it means so much as what the Bible explains that it means. And if you start in Genesis and go through the Bible like Natalie was talking about, you will see that to have a fear of the Lord, it means a lot of things. Because God is infinite and wise and good and, and loving. And to have a fear of the Lord is, first of all, to know the Lord. I remember, I think of Pharaoh. He says, I don't know, I don't know who the Lord is. Why would, I, why would I do what he says? I don't know who he is. I don't know the Lord. That's what he told Moses. To fear the Lord is to know the Lord. It's to have a relationship with him. It's to walk with him. It's to esteem him. To esteem him as Lord. It's to reverence him. It's to worship him. It's to serve him. It's to love him to trust him. To fear the Lord is to trust the Lord. To fear the Lord is to obey the Lord. In Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not just an Old Testament thing. First Peter chapter two says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, I, I'm, I've used up all of, of uh, our time uh, to this point, but I 
I hope you'll bear with me as I try to just move into one other, one other thing. Um, we talked about the word hakma, wisdom, and how it had kind of like, sort of developed two, two meanings. It had a, a meaning, but then there was this develop, theological development. Well, there's another word in scripture that's kind of like that. It's also a really important word as it relates to this whole subject of the wisdom literature. And, and whether we're uh, willing to humble ourselves and be teachable or not. And it's, it's, the, it's a very common word, um, and you may probably be familiar with it. It's the word Shema, and it means here. When you read Proverbs chapter 1, which uh, if you didn't do that this week, I'm, perhaps you've done it at some point, you, you see the word here used multiple times there. Verse 5, that the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Uh, verse 8, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Uh, Shema is uh, also, excuse me, the, uh, the word given to a prayer that Jewish people pray. Uh, it's the centerpiece of their morning and evening prayers, even to this day. They refer to it as the Shema. It's, it's found, it's a text coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. See, fearing the Lord is loving the Lord. That's part of the meaning. And, uh, and it's, it's a very interesting word, however, because it means hear, or listen, if you will. And uh, uh, so did you, you might not, have not be aware of this, but did you know that in Hebrew... There is no word for obey. In English, we have the word obey. If we want our children to obey us, we can say, you need to obey me. Uh, in Greek, there's the word obey. In Hebrew, there is no word obey. But there is this word shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear and increase in, in, in wisdom. I, I, I find that interesting. Uh, and, you know, I... I'm a bit of a word nerd, so I could easily, you know, digress here. Uh, it does, the word Shema does not mean obey. I, I, how do I, do we know that? Well, it says that God hears. It says that God hears us. The Psalms, when David's saying, God, God, hear, hear, it's Shema. We're not, he's not calling for God to obey him. He's calling what? He's calling for God to, to listen and to, to hear and to, and to know my situation and, and understand my situation and respond. And all of these meanings are wrapped up in that word Shema. It's an amazing, amazing word. The, re, the reason I bring it up is because the wisdom literature and the whole, the whole Bible really give this, this explanation for how we become wise or how God uh, dispenses his wisdom to us. It's in this concept or this word, Shema. Um, there's all kinds of examples. My, one of my favorite ones is Solomon when he prays and asks God for wisdom. Everybody knows the story, right? Solomon becomes king and he prays and asks God for wisdom and God said, God was so impressed. He said, I want, I need, I want wisdom so I can rule your people well. And, and God had said, if you, you know, ask me for anything you want, anything, anything, think of it. Ask me anything you want. I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, I want wisdom so I can rule, rule your people well. Wow, that's amazing. So God was impressed. And God says to Solomon, he says, you know what? That, I'm so impressed that you asked for that. 
I'm, gonna, I'm not only going to answer you and give you that, I'm going to give you everything else too. That's going to c- come up in our study of Ecclesiastes. But did you know literally what Solomon asked for was a Shema heart, a heart that hears. And throughout scripture, all the way in the New Testament, Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's he talking about there? He's talking about Shema. He's not talking about, you know, sound waves going into your, your ear canal. Because everybody can do that unless, unless you are physically deaf. That's not the issue. That's not the problem. But he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's it really mean to listen? What's it really mean to be teachable? Am I teachable? And I'm just gonna jump through, I've got a whole bunch of stuff here that I'm just gonna jump over top because it's, it's midnight, midnight. It's noon now, it feels like midnight. <laughs> midnight looks like noon on my phone, I know that. I don't know about your phone, but on my phone it looks the same. And I think I'm getting hungry. I'm, I'm lacking oxygen to my brain. Uh, I hope that in a moment, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to stand and, and, uh, and pray with me in just a moment. Uh, and then, then as you make your way out, I hope that you'll grab a, a prayer card for the Honduras team. And, uh, and also out there, uh, uh, the supplies that the team wants to take. You still have opportunity to give to that. There's lots of needs there. And then I hope you'll join us for uh, cafe lunch. Uh, I had some really good stuff in here that I can't share with you about Jesus being the great high priest and the king of kings and, and, uh, and uh, the prophet and, and the wise man. But, but let, me just, let me just try to end with, with this. Are you willing to sit at his feet? Because wisdom is not so much an aptitude as it is an attitude. It's a posturing of our hearts. If you, if you sincerely want to be really smart, and there's a lot of smart people in this world, but God would say to us, if you really want to be smart, if you want what the Bible says is God's wisdom, the ultimate wisdom of life, then are you willing to sit at the feet of Jesus? I love that picture in the New Testament where Martha is busy, 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 and Jesus says, there's a Mary. She's chosen the one thing. Am I teachable? For the next several weeks, that challenge is going to go out to us. Solomon, we believe, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He's not named in it, but all the indication is there. And he shares what he learned in his life, and he learned a lot the hard way. But he wants to point us to Jesus. And I think we need to ask that question. Am I willing to sit 
at the feet of Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to stand. And we've gone a little bit long. That doesn't happen very often. I'm so glad you guys are so gracious. Really, I'm, I'm, I sincerely mean that. Um, it's a big subject, but a really important one. May God give us the grace this morning and in the days going ahead to look at our own hearts and ask ourselves this important question. How teachable am I really? I'm praying, Isaac, you're gonna, get, you're gonna learn a lot over the next while. Nat, you're gonna continue to learn. But what about the rest of us? How teachable am I? Am I willing to sit at the feet of Jesus? The master teacher, Rabbi I. Pray with me, will you? Father in heaven, thank you for this tremendous group of people this morning. Thank you for our church family. What a, what a wonderful church family that we are privileged to be a part of. Thank you for everything that we've experienced here today together. And we look forward to the next uh, even uh, minutes and hours uh, to, of this day and, and going forward just to enjoy your blessings on us as we look to you. And God, may we look to you. May we know what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord, to know you, to trust you, to follow you, to obey you. Lord, help us to humble ourselves and take our place at the feet of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you were willing to die for us because we've all played the part of the fool. We've all gone astray and you took our foolishness and our iniquity and our sin you paid for the whole thing because you are not only our master teacher, you are our wonderful savior and we worship you this day in Jesus' name, amen.